Today I am talking a little bit about creating and killing a saint in medieval Iceland. And I'm actually really excited to get to give this because a few years ago when I was a new hire at Trine, I actually gave a symposia here about this same saga, this same text. And I didn't have a lot to say about it then. I was just like, something as weird is going on with this saga. I'm trying to figure it out. And that's all I did. Right? I'm like, here it is. I think I finally figured out what I was trying to figure out then. And so this is actually the bare bones of an article I'm about to send out to one of those dreaded peer-reviewed journals that your tech comm and composition professors have made you learn about. Hopefully, you guys will agree with me, and I can convince you. And then maybe that means I can also convince the outside reviewers who will be reviewing this article soon. All right, so the plan, what I'm going to talk about today, is a bunch of moving pieces. Right? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about medieval Icelandic culture and the sagas, just so you've got a little bit of background. Um, talk a little bit about social order and honor in this culture. Right? Um, talk a little bit about sacred space and what that means. Um, and then I'm going to talk to you about Harappan Sagas Fembjörnsonar. I won't try to make you pronounce it, um, but that is the text that I am working with. Right? So it's all going to focus on this one text. The rest is background. So this is a lot of moving pieces. Hopefully at the end I will stick the landing and be able to explain to you how these all tie together and what argument I'm making about this particular text. Right. Right. So a little geography lesson here. Right. Here's Iceland. It's the bit in yellow. Ta-da. Right. And this is going to be relevant in just a minute. Here's Ireland right here. And here's Norway. Right. Um, and so we're talking, and forgive me if you already know your geography, but when I was an undergrad I did not know my geography. So I'm, I'm Presuming the same here. So we're starting in medieval Iceland, which is when this island in the middle of the Atlantic was first settled. It's a volcanic island, so there were no people there until the Middle Ages. The very first people there were actually Irish monks, which is why I'm showing you where Ireland is. And they would just get on a small one-person boat and head out into the ocean and let God take them wherever he took them, because medieval Irish monks were apparently very hardcore, and a few of them actually survived and floated all the way to Iceland. And so we have a few of them there, but the first real settlers came from Norway. And so early Middle Ages, we get a wave of settlers coming in from Norway because they find the island and they say, hey, free land. Nobody's here. It's ours to take. So we get the first permanent settlers. The first one, uh, permanent settler who came purposely was a guy named Ingolfur Andersen in 874. He came from Norway. Traveled, took up residence. He just says, this is my plot of land, this is where I'm living now. Um, we soon had a whole wave of people coming. There was a lot of political stuff happening in Norway at the time, um, and I won't tell you all about it, but suffice to say, it was bad enough a lot of people wanted to get out of town. Um, and so Iceland was free and open. Right? So the shorelines were settled very quickly, um, mostly because the middle of the country is all volcanic rock and glacier, so there's not a lot in the middle. Um, but the shorelines were all settled. settled. We have literary culture absolutely flourishing here, which is somewhat surprising. People don't always expect that. They think this is the same culture that produced the Vikings. It might surprise you to know the Vikings like, went home and like, really appreciated poetry and wrote a lot of it. Believe it or not, it's true. Take Viking Lit next semester, I promise you. Right? They also wrote a ton of sagas. And saga in Old Norse just means story. So they wrote tons and tons of different stories. It's a hyper-literate culture. So they sat around all winter in the dark. It's very dark there in the winter. And they just wrote and told stories. We've got whole different types. We've got the legendary sagas, like Volsunga Saga, which has giants and gods and larger-than-life heroes running around. We have the sagas of Icelanders, which is about these early settlers. So they're sort of 
about real people, but they get a little bit mythologized over time. Right? We have bishop sagas, which are religious ones. Um, and then we have the contemporary sagas, which were written about not long after they happened. They're all about real people, and that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at one of the contemporary sagas. Um, so the Hrappen saga was probably written by a guy who actually knew Hrappen at some point, um, or was within living memory. So there's lots of different types. Um, here's where our first settlers were. They were down in Reykjavik, around that area in the corner. That's the, it's currently the capital. And I just wanted to show you this next picture because it's cool. Oh, it's dark. You guys can't see it very well. Um, but this is actually one of the first, the foundations of one of the first settlements. Um, it's dark because it's in the basement of a hotel. Um, when they were building the hotel, they were excavating, and they found this. And it was exactly where the text said it should be. Like, oh, this is one of our very first homesteads. So they just built the hotel on top of it. And you can go in the basement and check out the settlement museum. Right? Um, so there's a little bit of the literary culture. There's who is, you know, this is all people coming mostly from Norway, from Scandinavia. They're speaking Old Norse. Tell you a little bit about the social order here. Right? Um, so we have a vocabulary word, sorry. Um, it's Gothi. Right? And that is a chieftain. Right? Um, so this is a, it's a democratic society. I mean, not everyone can vote, but it is, they are deciding things by vote. Right? And it's arranged into districts. Once it's settled, they set it up into districts. The Gothi was a chieftain. So he's like the person in charge of his district. So this is the rich guy. This is the landowner. I was trying to think of an equivalent in modern America, and we really don't have one. It's like, would that be like the governor or a senator? Suffice to say, it's, it's the guy who's calling the shots in that district. Um, the Gothi is often also a religious leader. So the first settlers are pagan. Christianity isn't around yet. So this Gothi, this chieftain, he's also usually the priest of a sort. Right? He is the one who is in charge of political decisions. He's in charge of the land. He's also in charge of worship. So a lot of the worship would happen at his house, and he would lead it. Right? He's also the one who goes to the Althing, which is this big government site. That's where all the lawsuits happen. That's where they, they hash out laws. Right? And the Thing sites is where it's like smaller like courthouse, what we would call courthouse sites. Um, it's just really where you'd meet and decide things. And I promise this will all come together at some point. Um, Another thing, family ties are very important, and they're legally binding. And you might say, well, family ties are legally binding now, but not to this extent. What this basically meant is that if you, you were on the hook for things your family members did. So if you have a terrible brother who goes out and kills someone, you might have to pay that fine or risk getting killed yourself. You didn't do it, but you're legally bound by stuff that your relatives do to a certain degree. So if you have terrible siblings, you're in really bad shape here. Um, they also saw honor as a zero-sum game. And I am talking here um, from what a scholar named uh, William Ian Miller has said. So if you're interested in this, he's the one to go for. Honor and status are very, very important. But they acted like there was only a certain finite amount of honor, a finite amount of status to go around. So in order for you to gain honor, for you to gain status, you have to take it from someone else. So if you get very popular and your status is very high, by extension, that means the people around you have less. You put these two things together, and things can get dicey. Because say someone insults someone in your family, that's killed the honor of all of your family. So you've got to fight back. And so you insult someone from their family, 
and then they're going to retaliate to get honor back, and you can see how this might escalate. Could be problematic. It does occasionally lead to blood feuds, right, where things just escalate and get bad, worse and worse and worse, and we get a Montague and Capulet kind of uh, situation where people start getting killed back and forth. This didn't happen very often in real life. In real life, if you have a terrible brother who kills someone, you pay the fee. You don't, you don't want to actually end up in one of these feuds. But they do happen. And I'm going to tell you about one in a little bit, in case you're really excited about hearing how these things worked. All right, so keep this in mind. I'm going to now switch gears a little bit and talk about sacred space in medieval Iceland. Um, so I'm looking off of a scholar named Sverre Jakobsen, who defined how sacred space works in churches in medieval Iceland. So the year 999, the entire country converts into Christianity, all at once, wholesale. It's a whole other story, I can tell you if you're interested. Um, so they all convert into Christianity, so suddenly their sacred sites become churches. And Sverre talks about all these churches, and there's a very specific idea of sacred space that happens here. They're very, very clearly delineated. They're always marked very, very clearly. You know exactly where the sacred space begins. Um, they're also, also secular power centers. Remember I said those Gothi, those early chi uh, chieftains, were also the religious leaders? After everyone converted to Christianity, it stayed that way. Some of them actually became priests, Christian priests. Um, though eventually the whole idea of celibacy and the priesthood caught up to Iceland. It didn't for a few generations. Um, but eventually that caught up and they eventually started then supporting the churches and the priests. So the Gothi would actually build a church on his land and he would be able to like hire the priest he wanted. Right? So he's still a religious leader. And it's a place where, for these sacred spaces where multiple worlds can exist simultaneously. So during the Catholic Mass, right, you have transubstantiation, you have the Eucharist. Right? There's this idea that the divine is reaching down into the building and is there literally with you at that moment. You are in two, two worlds at once. Sphere has gone through a lot, of, a lot of different accounts of churches in medieval Iceland and says this is the same for all of these sacred spaces. I would actually, and this is one of the part of my argument here, I might actually add on to his argument here and say this particular idea of sacred space isn't confined to Christian churches. I think it's actually an older idea. Going through a bunch of the sagas myself and looking at how they work, I think this idea of sacred space actually predates Christianity. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of examples. I'm going to give you one here. So this is Helgefelt. It literally means holy mountain. So this was, um, was considered a sacred site pre-Christianity. It belonged to a family where the, the um, patriarch was named Thorvaldur. They considered this to be the place where their ancestors went when they died. And that was a fairly common belief. Your ancestors went into a mountain, they went into a mound, and they're hanging out there. You know which one. So when you die, you know you're going to go back into that mound and you're just going to chill with your family forever. So you hope you have a good family that you don't mind hanging out in the mound with. Right? So this was considered sacred to this family. It has the same type of sacred space as churches, the later Christian churches. Very clearly delineated. They marked exactly where the sacred space started and ended. Right? It's a place of secular power. One of these thing sites, these government sites, is right there. Right? So it's secular power and religious power mixed together. Obviously a place where two worlds meet. They believe their dead ancestors are there with them. Right? So the living and the dead are living together here. So I am arguing this idea of sacred space 
it was there. It's been in medieval Iceland since the first settlers. Um, and when Christianity came in, they took that idea of sacred space and applied it to churches. So yes, my argument, this is a carryover that just fit very, very neatly with Christianity. All right, so you've got some background culture. You've got sacred space. Hang on to all of that in your head for a moment here because we want to actually talk about Harappan Saga. So this particular saga I'm talking about, Harappan Saga Svenbjörnersonar, it talks about a real 12th and 13th century Godi. He's one of these chieftains. He died in 1213. He was a real person. He is in the historical record. It's one of the contemporary sagas, so it's written by someone who, within living memory. So it's written not more than a generation or so after he's died. So it's fairly realistic in some points. There's, there's no dragons or anything or gods running around in Harappan Saga. Sorry. Um, it takes place in the West Fjords. I'll show you some pictures in a minute. Um, and it's, this is very, very much trying to make Harappan out to be a saint. Whoever wrote this saga made it sound like hagiography. Hey, That's just the life story of a saint. So whoever wrote this saga was basically saying, here, for your consideration, we should make this guy a saint. I'm going to write about him and talk about him as if he's already a saint, and maybe we can make this happen. So here's our map again. Here's the West Fjords up here. Right? So it's this part that sticks out. Um, very, very, a lot of fiddly coastline, um, a lot of very steep coastline. You don't have a lot of arable land here. And I've got some pictures for you. Um, so here's what it looks like, um, just so you guys can see. Right? We've got the coast, land soaps up very, very quickly. Um, obviously, the modern bridge was not there in Harappan's time. But you know, I figured you could, wanted to see a little bit of the land. Um, here's more what it would look like during Harappan's lifetime, right? um, including the sheep. They had a lot of sheep then. They've got a lot of sheep now. Um, also, I have to say, I think this is probably the best composed picture I've ever taken, and I would like to thank the sheep for obligingly looking up at the exact right moment so they're all looking cutely at you. Um, all right, so here's the background. Here's what this place looks like. So I'm going to pause now and tell you very, very quickly an outline of Hrappen's life as it is told in the saga, and we're going to focus mostly on how he died. So, spoiler alert, this story does not have a happy ending. So we get the story of Hrappen. He's the son of a Godi, destined to be one himself. So he comes from a powerful family. He's described as being very, very pious from a very early age. So he's, when he was very young, he went on pilgrimages. So he got on a ship, and he went to Europe, and he went to various pilgrimage sites, specifically so he could pray in front of particular saint shrines. He was friends with a guy named Bishop Gudmander, who was a very holy person, very famous amongst holy people in this time period, at least if you're in Iceland. He comes back to Iceland. He takes up his position as Godi. He's the chieftain. He's also a physician. He's a doctor. And he's described as being a very, very skilled surgeon. Apparently, he's very, very good at setting broken bones, which is an important skill at this point. right? You can't go to you know, the orthopedist and get an x-ray if you break a bone. You just need someone who knows how to set it and will do it well. Apparently, he's very good at that. We get descriptions of medieval surgery which probably isn't quite as grisly as you might think, but still pretty grisly. Um, it talks about him sewing people up. It talks about him cutting cancerous growths off of people. Apparently, he was a great physician. He's also a really rich Godi. So they say he gives all of his services for free. 
Anyone who is sick or hurt and can get to him, he will house them and take care of them. No charge. He's described as being very, very generous and still always very, very pious, very, very religious. So he's very rich, he's very pious, he's very generous, he's giving his skills for free, he's really popular. I mean, he sounds great, right? Everybody really likes him. His status, his honor gets very, very, very high. If you remember what I said before about honor and status being a zero-sum game, if yours gets high enough, you become a target. Because he's got a lot of it, everybody else wants it. Enter right. another character called Thorvaldr. And in case you can't guess, Thorvaldr is going to be our villain of the piece. So he's originally Thrapen's friend. They get along great. But Thorvaldr gets jealous. Thrapen's got all this status, Thorvaldr falls on bad luck. It gets rough. So their two households start sniping at each other. Thrapen never does. Thrapen always remains above it. You know, he's the bigger man. He's, he's not hurting anything. But remember what I said earlier about you're on the hook for what your relatives and your household do. So once the relatives, and Thrapen is a Godi, he's responsible for his whole household. Once the two households start sniping against each other, it starts growing. It's that feud situation that I explained earlier. Right? So the insults get higher and heavier each time. Again, Hrappen's not doing it, but still, he's stuck in the middle of it because he's responsible for what his relatives and his household do. Eventually, the insults and, and everything else escalates until we get into a blood feud situation. We've hit that threshold, and they just go barreling right past it. So Thorvaldr actually ends up making three different attempts on Hrappen's life. The first two don't work, but uh, like I said, spoiler alert, the third one does. And that's what I really want to focus on here. So for the death scene, we have Hrappen in his house. And he's got an enclosed area. He's got a bunch of buildings. He's basically living in a compound with his family, his friends, his followers. There's a stone wall. So they've built a wall around this entire compound, clearly delineating the space. Thorvaldr and his friends raise someone over the wall. They actually like put someone on a shield and push them up over so you can get in and unlock the doors. They then set fire to the building where Trappen and his family and a bunch of his followers are. So, and that's, that's not a cool thing to do, right? Um, that's, that's a dishonorable way to inter, to inter feud, right? But they do. So Trappen and his family are left with the choice to either burn alive inside the house or run outside onto the waiting swords of the people who are waiting for them. Not a great situation to be in, obviously. Right? While this is happening, Thrapen's servants are running around. They're throwing water on the fire. They're trying to put it out. Thrapen gets his priest. Remember, he's a Godi. He's in charge of religious services. He's got a priest living with him who he hires and pays for. He has the priest start to sing matins. And so he and the priest are there singing psalms together, singing prayers together as everyone runs around and the house is burning around them. Eventually, Thrapen shouts outside. He keeps offering Thorvaldr some things to let the rest of the household go. He originally says, okay, I'll give you everything I own. Just let us out. Thorvaldr says no. Thrapen says, okay, I'll go into exile. I'll leave Iceland forever. You can have it all. Just let us out. Thorvaldr still says no. And finally, Thrapen says, fine, you can just have me. You can do whatever you want with me. Just let everybody else go. And Thorvaldr finally says yes. So everyone's allowed to come outside. 
well, the house is still doing its thing, right? um, i.e. burning. Uh, they, uh, Thorvaldr and his friends grab Hrappen, and they grab two of his followers. Hrappen they're going to kill. The two followers they're going to maim. So that's, that is dishonor. That is taking honor from them. We've seen a miracle happen before the attack happens. There's a meteor in the sky. And that's over the farmstead. This attack happens. They give Hrappen time to hear mass one more time, to take the Eucharist. And then he gets on his knees in an attitude of prayer. And they cut his head off while he's praying. But the saga doesn't quite end there. It says that where Hrappen died, where his blood fell, was bare stony ground. And the next spring, plants miraculously grew from the area. The end, there's our, there's our hay geography. Okay. All right, so why on earth am I telling you all of this and talking about honorable feuds and sacred space and Harappan Saga all in one presentation? This is where I hope I stick the landing and tie this all together for you guys. Right? Um, so what I'm really looking and what I'm really interested in here is Harappan's death scene and what happens to his house as a space. Okay. So it's a Gothi at the location of secular power. This is the, the compound where he rules from. So remember, he's a Gothi, he's a religious leader as well as a secular leader. This is happening at a religious and secular place of power, just like all of our other sacred spaces, pagan and Christian before. Right? It's a clearly defined space. They've got the walls, that they like literally stone walls they have to climb over to get into it. Um, there's a respectful imitation of the mass. As this place is burning down, Trappen and his priest are basically mimicking a mass. They're mimicking religious ceremony. Trappen right? um, dies in a state of grace. The, uh, the saga is very careful to say he made a full confession to his priest. He took the Eucharist. According to his beliefs, that means he's died in a state of grace. He's going straight to heaven, right? meaning he is breaking the boundary between two worlds in that space. He is ascending straight to heaven from right there. Right? And there's miracles before and after. We have signs in the sky before he dies. We have the miraculous plants afterwards. What I'm arguing is that in Hrappen's death scene, his very house, his compound, becomes the exact same type of sacred space that we saw with churches, same type of sacred space that we see with pagan sites as well. This is being transferred and given to Hrappen. So my conclusion, so I can pull all of this together, this is where I try to stick the landing. Right? is that the author is using this centuries-old understanding of sacred space. It came with the first settlers. It was there in the pagan sites. It gets transferred into churches. He's using that as another way to argue for Thrapen's sainthood by making his house the same kind of sacred space as a church. So that's my big conclusion. Um, and if you have any questions, I am happy to hear them. <laughs>